This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Shall I tell you what I find beautiful about you? You are in charge of the best when things are worse. Sooner or later, though, you always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas. And I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. I want to thank you, very dust member, for making our truth journey a reality. Please subscribe at VeritasRadio.com to listen to all segments of tonight's interview and all of our material. And have you stopped by our sponsors page? This is a great way to help Veritas advertise your product or service and for the listeners to also know that our members and sponsors are the ones who make it possible that we release one segment of every show for free. So please, visit our website and support our sponsors. And for MMS, our USB drives with all of our seasons and bonus material, and now Phyto Vitamins, where you can feel the difference, visit our Veritas store. And to get in touch with us for member support, media inquiries, you want to be a guest or are a whistleblower? There's a link for you by clicking on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. More and more Americans are coming to feel that something has gone fundamentally wrong in our society. We have suffered repetitive wars, big and small. Some won and some lost but with the peace always lost, our society has been drained of around $9 trillion in welfare costs since LBJ's war on poverty was declared, but with no diminution in the incidence of quote-unquote poverty 
our quote-unquote war on drugs, has also been lost, with the societal cost running around $500 billion per year. The cost of fixes for runaway environmentalism has reached about $1 trillion since the birth of the EPA in 1970. Our national debt is almost $17 trillion and still going up. Two breadwinners per family has become normal, just to keep bread on the table. Americans feel put upon, and they are right, but they don't know who's doing it to them or why. Such issues have been pondered by researchers for many years, but the historical facts are finally bringing the pieces of the puzzle together. Tonight's guest paints a picture of that largely completed puzzle, and will lay out who the culprits are, why they are doing what they are doing, and how they are managing to pull off what is probably the biggest mass robbery of wealth and individual freedom in human history. Tonight's interview will help to expose and stop the destruction and help to guarantee a future of freedom rather than slavery for our children. For this and much more, Alan B. Jones is tonight's special guest. Right now on Veritas. This is F. William Engdahl, and you're listening to Veritas. Alan B. Jones is a recently retired electrical engineer, having worked for a major U.S. manufacturing firm for over 40 years. He was, quote-unquote, bitten by the political bug back in the Goldwater days, and once ran for office himself for state senator on a third-party ticket, but has not otherwise been in the public spotlight. He has poured his whole life of political awareness into helping the new generation get up to speed faster for the good of the whole country. He believes that his research can serve as an outline for action or a platform for the political parties old and new. He is the author of many books, including How the World Really Works, which will be the focus of tonight's discussion. And for the first time on Veritas, I would like to welcome the author of How the World Really Works, Alan B. Jones. Hello, Mr. Jones, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Yeah, I'm just fine. Thank you. I'm glad to have you on. And before we started the show, just so that the audience knows, we record this show before. It, it's not live. And it just so happened in the past few minutes, I've heard that the military in Egypt uh, there has been a coup d'etat, a positive coup d'etat, in my opinion, in Egypt, where President Morsi has has to step aside, and now the a Supreme Court justice has taken over the presidency uh, as an interim president. I know that we haven't discussed this uh, prior to the interview, Mr. Jones. May I call you Alan, by the way? Certainly. What's your take on what has been happening in Egypt? Uh, we'll discuss your book in a few minutes, but I'm interested to know, because about a year ago or more, I spoke with another researcher who happens to be Egyptian, and he was very happy to see Hosni Mubarak gone. But what I told him was, you know, I don't like the dictatorship. I don't like the fact that he has been pocketing billions of dollars from the United States, but it's the devil we know. What about the Muslim Brotherhood and the fact that we don't know them? What's your take on all of this? Well... <clears throat> I think uh, from uh, the point of view of us in the United States, uh, as a matter of fact, the point of view of most of the rest of the world, uh, we have to 
put the events, any one event like this where a, where a coup is happening or a change of regime is occurring, who benefits uh, is the question always. And therefore, you're maybe led to more information uh, about uh, uh, how this thing uh, came about. Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, for example, is... Uh, is probably one of the, the big enemies of Israel, uh, and uh, so one of the questions that I would ask is Israel being our alleged best friend, and so forth. Why? What are they getting out of this change? Uh, and uh, and we don't know that yet. I don't think about uh, uh, who the uh, the man who is the at least. Uh, even a temporary leader of the country, what is he going to do with respect to the, uh, to the other people around the Middle East and the United States, and, and what is his position going to be uh, regarding those conflicts? We don't know yet. Well, at, at one point when this all started, uh, you know, there were people on the ground looking at the smoke bombs and some of the weapons being used by police saying made in the USA. So I know the people there were upset from the beginning, but they, they, they thought that we were trying to help change, exert a regime change, get Mubarak out, which is what they wanted during the Arab Spring. But now they realize that that was not what they really wanted. They want to go back, in essence, to, to more of a moderate situation. They want to bring tourism back. The economy is not improving. It's going down in a downward spiral because people, uh, a lot of people are not going back to Egypt. What do you think is going to happen from this point on if the military has taken over? Uh, that is so difficult to guess. I, I don't know. This idea of wanting to have a non uh, or, or, or desiring let's say to have a sectarian type government is i think is a, is a good move for any one of the countries back there particularly even syria or turkey uh both when they uh, end up with uh, somebody who is a shiite clearly or uh, a sunni clearly uh, then there's going to be conflict and uh how this I cannot I cannot guess how this is going to happen and what is going to happen in the short term uh, in uh, in Egypt uh, and in a way I think this is actually happening in, in uh, Turkey with uh, President Erdogan they want to change the country from a secular country regime into a sectarian or a theocracy isn't that what's happening there and you know we look at syria you had the sunnis and the shiites but the, the assad uh, many people like him there and he's an alawite so he seems his regime seems to be protecting all religions you know the, the jews that are there the christians that are there but the rebels seem to be the ones that are slaughtering the rest well, the, the rebels are uh, not uh, homegrown rebels at all. Right. They're outsiders who are uh, who are attacking Sadat, uh, uh, the uh, his regime uh, in uh, Syria, uh, because that's part of the a a, a larger effort uh, 
Egypt. <laughs> I think, again, we go back to Israel, which has stated their desire to to be dominant over that whole Middle East area. And the people who are standing in their way are are the ones who are presently being attacked. And so it includes Syria, then finally Iran, uh, and uh, that is is a is a second major step goal, which I just hope to God we manage to keep out of. Do you think? In some people may think that I'm I'm nuts by saying this, but do you think Israel wants to keep the region? In an, unstable, in an unstable way so that they can continue receiving the, the military help and all the billions of dollars that they get every year from us? Uh, they are using all the, the, the money and military help uh, from us exactly for the purpose of eventually being uh, militarily and therefore in every other way dominant uh, in that uh, Middle East. Uh, they, uh, the Arab groups are on to their game, of course, because Israel doesn't keep this one bit secret, uh, except possibly from uh, the American public. Uh, but uh, you know, they have uh, their thing. Their goal is something they call Eretz Israel. Uh, which is in fact uh, to dominate or to run, you know, that whole uh, region, and they're just doing the things that they believe they have to do in order to get to that point. And militarily speaking, why they have accomplished a lot of their goals, they're clearly the strongest military uh, right now. But but they can't just use it willy-nilly. They have to tiptoe around and get other people to do their bad work for them on the edges and all that. So they hire these, uh, uh, and, and we are helping them, too. We are hiring uh, people who are uh, out, even unto al-Qaeda, those kind of people, just uh, people that they can get from anywhere, arm them, send them into the place that they want to attack, and they attack. And Assad uh, sees them coming, and he knows what's going on, and so forth. And uh, so long as... We've managed to keep these uh, uh, paid uh, fighters uh, without heavy uh, arms. By Assad will have his uh, his way. He he will beat them down, and and then uh, if we give up on trying to overthrow him right uh, right now and stop arming these uh, mercenaries and all that, why Assad can get his country back again and get it on a square footing and start rebuilding it and getting keeping on going the way that he always wanted. He runs a secular kind of an outfit. This country is it's not bad at all. We, 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 the people of the United States, could get along with it perfectly well, but we're not in control of our own destinies in this country. So, And that's going to be, I think, the subject of tonight's show, how we are not, we're no longer in charge but one last thing about Syria, I just wonder, look at Libya, and we can do an entire show of what happened in Libya 
that was a, a benevolent dictator who was there and he, he treated his people well. And there's a lot of information that's not being released here. But with, with Syria, you look at all these countries, uh, Egypt and Tunisia. Why hasn't Syria fallen already? Is it because they have Russia behind them and even China? Well, I think that there are plenty of, of people in our own Pentagon who are are very leery of, uh, of, of charging in to uh, Syria with heavy weapons and so forth. The thing about Syria, Syria has a, a naval base which belongs to Russia. And if we set about to, to up, upset Syria, uh, then Russia is is, 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 is directly impacted. And we then are starting uh, a serious argument with somebody else who's got just as many nuclear weapons as we do. And, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's a, a dead man's game. That's bad. And how about Iran with their new, okay, the issue Israel had recently was with uh, Iran and mostly with Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. He's gone now. Supposedly, there's a more moderate uh, leader now, although they're just puppets because the mullahs are the ones who really are in charge of the country. What is the, the is there a difference between the new leader and how things will pan out between Iran and Israel and the world? I would say the change that has occurred in this last election in Iran is going to have practically no effect to, to our relationships with the rest of the world and all their relations. They're going to, as you, as you point out, their policies are not directed by the guy who is uh, like Ahmadinejad or this new man, uh, but rather by one of the Ayatollahs behind them. And they, uh, uh, even unto developing nuclear weapons, if in fact Iran uh, is, is uh, sort of tooling up to to come so very close to that kind of a thing, uh, then that is done at the behest of the people who are the real rulers of Iran. Uh, and uh, you, one might ask a question: uh, Why would Let's say let's take a look at the guy who is uh, really running sh the show over there, uh, and, and uh, if, if he wants uh, to have a nuclear weapon, why? Why would he want to have a nuclear weapon? Well, he he would equalize the playing field then with Israel, who he recognizes as the prime enemy or the prime person who is trying to do him in, and. Uh, if they were in fact equalized, then I would just I would I would I would guess that the uh, situation would be uh, rather uh, instead instead of uh, becoming more dangerous, it becomes less dangerous. It's more stabilized. That is to say, we had a very a cold war with Russia for many years, and we were both armed to the teeth. But we all saw that neither one of us. Could ever uh, win such a war as that? Everybody would get destroyed, and so we, so the thing is stable. If, if now, if just one of us had, and particularly if if uh, Russia had nuclear weapons and we didn't, then I think we would have been done in a long time ago. If we have the nuclear weapons and they don't, well then we uh, were brought up in a 
uh, form of society that says, hey, hey uh, we don't go around killing people just willy-nilly. And, and our society is sort of like that. And the society is, still has some say in what our government does. Not, not as much as it used to, but it still has some say. And uh, so I don't, I wouldn't worry too much about Iran, even if, even if they were, in fact, to, to get up to 100% enrichment, uh, and, and therefore uh, have materials that are capable of, of making uh, atomic weapons. Uh, to me, to, they, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be the first to use it. Likewise, uh, because they, they know that uh, that they'd be signing all their own death warrants to do that. Yeah, it's a mutually agreed, uh, mutually assured destruction, mad, what we used to have with Russia. But exactly. I always think, and I say this all the time, that Israel is not a signatory of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. They don't even declare their hundreds of nuclear warheads that they have in Demona. Iran, to the contrary, they report what they have, and they don't want to produce a nuclear weapon. Why this double standard? <laughs> and as you know, the media does not like to talk about this for obvious reasons. Yes. Uh, well, you know, uh, somebody at some point must talk about truth. Because if you don't talk about the realities, well, you're never going to get to the point where you can do something rather that is going to hang together and fix it. And we uh, we have a lot of problems in this country, but one of the one of the problems is that uh, let's go to one of the problems. One of the problems that I even I even bring up in my very first book, I made a, a list of our problems. One of them has got to do uh, with uh, the media, which we all read, our, our television, uh, the the main the New York Times, Washington Post, and, and so forth. Uh, are in fact substantially owned by the Zionist uh, groups in this world, and so we we get uh, all of our news presented to us through a Zionist type filter, and that filter uh, just wipes out all kinds of things that are un that are that they. Uh, Owners of the media don't want us to know about, and so we we don't get. To, therefore, we we are led to try to find uh, sources uh, outside of the main media for what is really going on in the world, and that's the part of what I tried to do in this uh, in, in my effort at writing books. I, I don't study what the media says. I I go back to libraries and find out people who have. Uh, who, who have tried to address various issues and how you uh, and what you do about them and, and all that, uh, and it's a very difficult thing to do. Say to try to put together a puzzle uh, which shows you how everything in in the world, the various uh, uh, groups that are uh, struggling to accomplish this or to accomplish that, how they all fit together into this into the one big true puzzle well it's a very difficult thing to do you know because you have to start with it's like you've got uh, two two uh, five thousand piece puzzles 
And what you do is, and one of them is uh, uh, is a picture which is uh, true and peaceful and nice, and the other is a picture is a thing which is uh, wrong and and it's a different picture. So you, what you do is you mix them all up together, mix all these pieces together. Now you try to figure out what are uh, the real puzzle is, uh, or what the real picture is, and all the evidences you have are half truth and half false. And that's a that's a toughie. And so we do the same thing with books. You you read a, a book and and you say, gee, that's interesting. Does it? But does it fit in with other things that I really know yet? That I know uh, from other sources. If it doesn't fit in with the thing that you, you that you believe you're 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 onto on the nature of what a real puzzle should look like, then you discard you discard it. Well. That's a that's a hard thing to do. It takes a lot of time and effort. And and but then there are people like me and others who uh, have done a very good job at at, at uh, taking one little part of that puzzle and studying the heck out of it, and and to the point where they understand what it should look like and all that. And we we take advantage of that. And they, uh, so we read, read something about, for example, the uh, the Federal Reserve. Uh, Federal Reserve is a big part of our of our existing life and our society. And so, what it does is important. And how does it fit in with politicians and what they do? And how does it fit in with our education system that is going to hell in a handbasket? And, and other things like, you know, it's a difficult thing to try to picture all put all those things together. So I you know I spent a lot of years trying to figure it out as best I can and and then write some books and and say, well so hey, there's a lot of problems. I find out first of all that gee, if uh, if you had a decent Congress you could solve these problems very easily. Uh, uh but we don't have a decent Congress. So how do you so how how do we how we ended up getting the people that we've got? And so you go backward and in history and, and how do they, who's running things anyway? You find out after a while that, you know, it's not the people that you're, you're lucky that are, that are causing the problems. It's a whole bunch of other people and movements and so forth. And we're being done too. It's, these things are not just happening by accident and all that. So, well, where did these people come from that, that are doing this, uh, doing this thing to us? And so you try to go back in history and find out uh, who they are and where they came from. And then you find out, you ask yourself the question, what do we, what, uh, what are the strengths that they've got that make them so effective in doing what they are doing? And, and you find out a lot about that. You find out about, first of all, a lot, lot it has a great deal to do with money, of course. So you, they control money and they can do things that you can't do without money. Uh, no, definitely. You talked about uh, half-truths, and half-truths are still lies. And that's well, why people listen to... Yes, and that's why people listen to you and I on this show, because we are not censored. And let's hope that the freedom of speech continues to, to be where it is here so that we're allowed to continue providing this platform. But as you say, the media, controlled by the Zionists, sure. the main agenda, correct me if I'm wrong, Alan, the main agenda to me 
is not only to, to become the new ministry of propaganda, but it's also to keep people stupid, docile, and apathetic. When people don't care, they, the, the, the hand, the, the hate in hand does what it needs to do and people don't even notice. Why? Yes. Uh, they have become very expert at that. One of the, I, I look for a weakness and they do have a weakness, which I have, I can pinpoint and put a finger on and so forth. And that is, uh, they have, they have told us all the years, they have to be good liars. They have to lie uh, skillfully and they have lie all the time and so forth. Why they have to lie? Because they have to lie in order to protect what their true uh, agendas are. If they were, if the, if the general population could understand and knew what the two agendas are, why they would ride them out of town on a rail. And, and, and then we'd solve our problems quickly. But they don't, we don't know because they lie. And, uh, they, they have a need to lie. It, it must be done. So I says, okay, that's their, that is their Achilles heel. They're, their need to lie in order to stay in in control and stay in power and to protect what their what their real goals are. So now we have some new technology which may come along to help us in this thing in, in this struggle that we're on. Incidentally, this see uh, the the order in which I wrote these five books that I have written. One of them was. To identify the, the the problems that we have in our country, like galloping debt and bad education and this and that, and, and then the two the next thing is uh, how do we get to a thing like that, and that's how the world really works. Who's doing it to us? Then the third book was what were their antecedents of these people who are doing the thing and that takes us back in history to uh, the the big split between Muslims and Christians and Jews, the three affairs, and, and they had conflicts and they had ways of, of dealing with the thing, uh, of their conflicts. But there I began to see what uh, the uh, their weakness was, was the fact that they had to lie. And so the, the next thing was, well, maybe we can take advantage of this thing, uh, of their weakness, they're having to lie by... Uh, Using current technology, we have things called lie detectors or voice stress analyzers, which is more modern. And if we can use those things uh, when in the process of electing or selecting the people that we the people uh, choose, to represent our interests in this, in our state and federal governments, then we can, in the long term, of, avoid uh, uh, the. You know, we, we would not. How do we put this? We say, hey, let's uh, every every elected representative or senator stands on the, with his hand in the Bible and, and swears to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. Well, the way things are today, they have had their fingers crossed behind their backs. And they don't believe that they're going to do anything like that at all. Uh, they, they care less for the Constitution of the United States. Uh, however, uh, if we can arrange 
also that uh, a truth type test is a is a to pass a truth test is a, a, a requirement for being seated in the uh, in our legislative halls. See and make make use of these kind of things during the course of elections or or finally at the end of the election, so that we are electing honest people who say when they take a, a, their oaths to protect and defend the United States in, in with the lie detectors at the ready and so forth, and they say yes, he, he is telling the truth, and so he is accepted. He can be seated, or say no, he's not telling the truth, so he's not going to be seated. But the problem, Alan, is that a lot of yeah. these people are psychopaths, and they—it's like what Hitler said: if you tell a big enough lie and tell it frequently enough, it will be believed. And all these people—they have one religion only; it's called re-election, and they repeat the lies and they believe them. So even if they go through a <laughs> a lie detector, I think they'll cheat it. But like many uh, uh, of our intelligence agencies they they must go through a lot of these tests when they're hiring people i think they should be able to use that in our own own politicians but the problem yes, is exactly right see once the, uh, the agencies of the say the nsa or if they don't do it they should be using fbi uh they do background checks and when they, when the thing gets to be important why they uh, they use lie detectors and so forth and this issue of uh, uh, sometimes the you, you, the thing will make a mistake. That's true. It's it, it's conceivable, and you and you do have uh, uh, weird situations that, that crop up of one kind or another. But by and large, uh, the all kinds of law enforcement agencies around the country are using these things because it helps them in their investigation of crime. And uh, and so for so I think the thing is we t we take advantage of that we take advantage of that because the the biggest thing that those guys do who are doing it to us you know, are they're lying they have to lie they lie all the time about what their goals are and all that uh, sort of thing and so they uh, hey even now today hey I get all kinds of uh, of requests in the mail for donations to somebody who has got a Tea Party a label on him or a Patriot label or some other thing like that. And I don't know about these uh, people. My guess is that that uh, uh, there, somebody has figured out some good ways of making money, which is to, is to sound, uh, write a letter that's, boy, it sure sounds yeah. great, and ask for money. And, and, I, and I don't know, I... I, I have a hard time to trying to figure out who's telling the truth and who's not telling the truth. Uh, it's hard to tell. Uh, that is to say, the, these liars who use lies in order to stay in power have become very, very good at it. And, and they're very expert at it. And, uh, and the problem know. is, Alan, that when people like you and I discuss these subjects at a social gathering, for example. The first people, the first thing people say is, wait a minute, I haven't heard that in the news, so it must not be true. <laughs> right. Uh, well, uh, okay, a couple of things I would say. One, I don't, I don't talk like this in any old social gathering. <laughs> 
because I know that, that uh, even, you know, I have, uh, there are people in my own extended family uh, who uh, I extend views with from time to time. And I know who is sort of with uh, my, my point of view and, and those who are not. And so, what do I do? Do I just, uh, try to uh, to uh, convert them? No, no, not in general. I I I think it's more important that I, but in a family thing, just to get along with the family. So I don't try to convert them at all. Uh, but I do. It has come up, though, and I and I'm you know if. I belong to one little group. It's not a little patriotic. As a matter of fact, it's a church type group. And they and they're on to me. They say, "Oh well, Al knows all about this such and such and such." So what does he think? And uh, or uh, you know, I, it's, it's so I I don't let all my hair down to everybody all the time. It's, it's silly because all you do is get into you don't have enough time to do all that conversion. That's why I write books. To, to, to write a book. You can uh, be very careful about uh, how, about not overstating uh, what your your position is. Make sure your references are are good and they're there and they're complete, and you try to be just as complete as you can. And you give uh, the reader the the source material that you've got that you use to arrive at your own uh, conclusions and and you encourage them to go to these sources and and uh, read them and all that it's not easy because uh, so, if you uh, get uh, go up to somebody who's never by themselves even find out there is a puzzle of some kind to be put together much less how to do it you know you're uh, it's too big of a uh, of, a, of an effort just to do in, in one or two little conversations. Indeed, and that's why probably I have this show because I got tired of uh, talking to people and maybe even being disinvited yes. of social gatherings. So now instead of doing that, I have this platform and people come voluntarily. Just like people go to the bookstore and buy your books voluntarily. And that's when you start making a difference. But in this yes. book... You've touched about, what, 12 great books. But before I ask you that, how does an electrical engineer wakes up to this reality? How does an electrical engineer what? Wakes up to this reality. What uh, woke you up? At, uh, uh, what uh, made you look at this puzzle and want to put it all together? Okay, good question. Uh, all the way through, let me see. Got, got all the way to high school, but went in the Navy for a couple of years, then went up to, to college and got this electrical engineering degree. And by the time that was, I got out of there, it was about 1950, and I still I didn't know anything then. Okay, I mean all I knew was engineering and and, and all that. Then I went to work and I went through an advanced engineering type program for a couple of three years, and then I started to teach that same program for you. Now we're up to about 1954. In 1953 and 1954 were the years that uh, uh, Senator McCarthy was prominent in, in the House Un-American Activities Committee. And I stumbled on that and followed, uh, and, and, uh, followed what the 
newspapers were following and what was on the original TVs we had way back then. And and then I said, something doesn't look right, that's interesting, and then just got interested in it. And that was the beginning. That was the thing that, that piqued my interest in the first place. And by the time then, uh, when Goldwater was, uh, was running this in the early 60s and up, and up to 64, that's when I was now actively involved with uh, 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 politics and trying to understand what was going on. That was the beginning. And from from that point on, up until the time I retired in the, uh, about uh, 1990 or so, uh, uh, I never uh, did uh, was involved in any, in any uh, actual political activity except for we, with Gold War way back in there in '64. And, and I did run for office at one point, but that was a educational effort and had a little newspaper that I was trying to run and and uh, and so forth um, but all those years uh, I, fo I followed events and I started reading and and uh, by the time that I retired from work uh, suddenly I had uh, the first time that I had some time to do uh, the things that I really wanted to do which was to write these books, and so I started. And uh, I had a just accumulation of of years from the 50s up until the you know 40 years worth, uh, and all this stuff was rattling around in my head about how to do this and how to do that and why can't we do such and such. And so then I got I got serious about re researching matter and getting it down on on paper to help myself to understand what was happening and then to help others to uh, you know, get through all this stuff in, in a shorter order than 40 years. And the nice thing about the way you present at least this book, I haven't read the, the others, is that I think you get the fact that right now, I don't know what happened 10, 15 years ago, but right now there's this preponderance of attention, attention deficit. And it's misdiagnosed to a lot of us. Even to me, it happens. I'm looking at one piece of news and then something changes and I'm all the time, my brain is wired now in a different way. It happens to a lot of people. You turn on the news and in the past you, you see, you would see the, the TV anchor reading the news, you know, talk about this subject. He would take five minutes. Now he takes 10 seconds to go around the world, you know, 30 second snippets. But the way you have written your book, you have compiled all this information of several great books that people because of lack of time or because of the attention deficit they may not be able to read it all at once but you have compiled the essence of a lot of them why don't we start with the first one and it's a, a mutual friend somebody who was on this show a few weeks ago william engdahl great researcher he wrote the book a century of war what motivated you to include that one in your book well i think the way it, it worked uh, was when I uh, sat down to try to, I knew what I wanted to do, what I, how I wanted to present the fact uh, that, and, and convince people, the readers of the fact that the things that were so wrong with our country 
uh, were not a, a matter of happenstance, but they were a matter of, of deliberate actions on people who were doing this thing to our country. So that, and that's my goal. That was the goal of this book, to convince people that we were being done to um, and that then that, that who's doing it and how it can be later taken on as uh, later issues. But so I had uh, various uh, I, I've, the, the, the books that I selected uh, to well, first of all, I, I made a, 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 a kind of a decision on how to go about do this by writing book reviews of uh, books that had been written by people who had examined at least portions of this big puzzle. And uh, so I had to select which books I was going to include as in as reviews in, uh, in, in, in my book and then uh, how to order them. And I picked uh, Engdahl's uh, book uh, because he does, in fact, take a, a quick look at the entire period uh, of, of, the, of the last century. Uh, and and uh, and you get a, a kind of a, 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 he knows what's going on. And, and so forth, and, and, and to some extent, uh, he uh, he's uh, he, how, how do I put this anyway? I I picked him uh, his book mostly because he it's called A Century of War, and that's what it is. It's kind of an overview of the whole war uh, of the whole uh, uh, the 1900s of that century, uh, and. It starts off with 1900, why we're in pretty good shape in the year 1900. And by the time uh, we, uh, we, we end the thing, why we're, we're fighting uh, 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 Contras and South, you know, all that stuff. It's going all the way through the uh, several wars, the Vietnamese War, World Wars, both of them, and so forth. And he's trying to. And he calls it a century of war, which is what it was. And so uh, he doesn't try to you know, talk so much about why there are all these wars or how they occurred, but the fact of the wars and the fact that we were involved in in all these things. So I picked him first. Let's go first just because he uh, uh, a, uh, a time span that covered the time span that I was interested in. Isn't it interesting that immediately after the Federal Reserve Act was passed up in 1913, we got dragged into World War One? Yeah. Well, it's uh, the the. Uh, let me see. There was they. Let me see. Uh, there was a. Was, uh, in order to, uh, who's I'm trying to think of a name. I wasn't Guggenheim. It was uh, 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 no Bernard Baruch, right? Um, no, the think tank is still around. It's it's it's, it's, it's the alphabet that settles libraries and so forth. Oh, Carnegie. Carnegie. Yes. <laughs> 
Carnegie, Carnegie Mellon. Endowment of, for International Peace. Okay. Uh, they, uh, uh, we got a peek into their, into their records, and that's one of the things that I got in, in my book about that peek into the records. And they concluded that if you wanted to uh, uh, change the country, a country, what was the thing that, that you, you would try to do to, what is the activity in the country that is most uh, 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 capable of bringing about changes? Answer, war, war. So then they say, then they said, and, and the next thing in their minutes, well, how can we help to get our country in, into war? Now we're we're talking about a period 1913 or 1912, and uh, uh, so that was what their their stated goal was was to start a war in order to produce a change, uh, and and then all the mechanics for getting us into the war and so forth, and the results of the war were uh, were like the League of Nations, and that was going to be the uh, controller. Entity after the war was all done and and uh, so forth, but they said we can't start a war uh, until uh, a couple other things, and so they they got the, the the Federal Reserve thing came along, 1913, and the uh, now we have a uh, a mechanism in place to finance our activities in a war. And so that's exactly what they did. And they so the the first thing that uh, that the federal the Federal Reserve did when the, now the war can be declared and we can start all of the activity toward getting the public to accept it, uh, which they didn't want to do. They didn't want any part in the European war. Uh, but the J.P. Morgan and so forth. Uh, bought up the the rights to the editorial uh, policies of the big newspapers, and so there and they set about to uh, convince the public that the war was in their in their interest, and um, and uh, they uh, the Federal Reserve then did its thing, and they they don't uh, you know uh, they can. They, uh, they have a, a mechanism in the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve is going to print essentially as much money as they need, or they lend the money to the to the uh, the government, and the government goes into the debt, and they take all this stuff. And all of the techniques which they use are des- are described later on in in, in my own book. Uh, and but they had to have the Federal Reserve in order to finance our activity in the war. And which is what they did, and the uh, war being the the, the uh, long-term tool which they use, which they are going to use in order to ultimately take over a country. Well, now we've had a lot of wars all during the uh, that century, starting with the uh, well, the first one, the Spanish-American War, back in 1900 or so. But that wasn't nearly as expensive as later on in World War One, and then you had to have uh, the Federal Reserve, and they helped to finance it, and uh, and then World War Two, and they helped to finance that, and uh, the Korean War, and all the all the wars that, that were in during the course of that century. And they probably financed both sides. 
Definitely. Well, <laughs> hey, yeah. Uh, in order to have a war, you've got to have an enemy. And if you don't have a good enemy, you, you can't have a good war. See, so so uh, now we uh, in World War One, the war was already underway when we got into it. See, so we could take on uh, and our friends were the British and the French and all these poor people who were suffering under the heel of the German Bosch and all that. And so we. Uh, uh, Helped to, to finance the, the good good guys in that war and so forth. And the war ended finally, and then along comes next uh, World War Two. World War Two, you have to have a good enemy. Well, now now we've got um, uh, Hitler, and Hitler then is financed rather directly from Great Britain and uh, our ally, Great Britain, of course. And the other uh, uh, people who control uh, the the big monies around the world. Now I'm getting ahead of the game, see, but that's what happened. So we did finance the the rise of of Hitler, and we subsidized the heck out of Stalin, and so forth during the course of the war. So we were supporting both sides before the actual physical war started. And then the physical war did start, and now we're all together on helping the communists uh, uh, defeat Hitler. And Hitler was the, I mean, Germany was the, the real target, I think, of that uh, of that war. And we got into the World War II uh, through the use of a patsy, which was Japan. And so, you know, I can shall I go into all that? Oh, please do, because many people think that on December the 7th, 1941, <laughs> we had no idea that the Japanese were coming when we actually did know. We did, exactly did we know, right. And we and uh, most of the countries around the, the world uh, had sniffed out this little plan of the Japanese, and uh, they knew that the Japanese were coming. They knew that where they were going to attack, which is going to be Pearl Harbor. They knew about practically when they were going, and they tried to warn uh, Washington, which is to say F.D. Roosevelt. And so Roosevelt uh, was being warned on every side, and, and, and the, of course the idea was, first of all, he knew it himself, and he because he had planned uh, uh, this sort of thing to happen with Churchill, and they knew about the uh, the treaty between uh, Germany and, and Italy, uh, Germany and uh, Japan, and uh, so in, in order to declare war on Germany, we're going to declare war on Japan, which has the same effect. So once we declare war on, on Japan, well, then we're in the war, into the war on Germany, against Germany, which is uh, what uh, Churchill and uh, the rest of the the real establishment running the world wanted. But but tell us what triggered Japan to attack Pearl Harbor because this is something that most people don't know. Well, we I can't give you those details, but they but they, they did involve embargoes of uh, oil, oil, if I remember, and other things that were you know putting in an embargo on a on a on a necessary good for a country is. 
is almost like it's almost as, as much as a declaration of war against the country. Anyway, we we did that, and the the, the uh, inside of Japan, then the uh, we did that to, to Japan before the War Hawks were in control, and then when the when when we they were stealing the pinch, uh, the uh, Japanese uh, changed their regime and they, and from from the people who were running it to the War Hawks Tojo and all that, and they and so then they uh, they then were willing to uh, take a, a, a military step against the uh, against the power that was giving them trouble, and that's about all I can really relate about that. No, that's fine. And most people really think that what happened during World War II is what the media tells us. And believe me, I'm not a fan of Hitler. I'm not a fan of Nazism. But there is a reason why Hitler came to power with a large majority voting for him. And the machinations of what happened there. Can you take a couple of minutes and summarize what happened there? I'm sorry. Yeah, can, can you take a couple of minutes and explain what brought Hitler to power and, and how this was all orchestrated when the entire country of Germany, there was an embargo created that took their their mark down to the point that to buy a loaf of bread, people had to pay a billion oh, yeah. marks because it was so devalued. And eventually... Hitler came to power and made Germany come back again, and well, the rest is history. This is a very touchy subject for many. Well, uh, <clears throat> after World War One, Germany then is has lost the war, and they, they uh, underwent uh, a, 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 a the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, and the, the, the Treaty of Versailles was utterly brutal against Germany, and, and they had reparations that they had to pay that were never in the world going to be payable. Billions well, of dollars back then. Yeah, billions of dollars plus interest and so forth, kind of thing. And and the, uh, and the uh, in lacking the payment thereof, why then there was people. There were the French army was going to march in and take over certain uh, of the uh, productive areas of the of the country of Germany, and that happened. And so the Germans uh, then uh, said, "Okay, we'll pay uh, the reparations," and they started essentially printing money. And they, and they, so they're a, uh, you know, I used to collect stamps and I had a stamp, German stamps at those times that here's a stamp that's worth uh, 10 billion, uh, marks, <laughs> a postage stamp, yeah. uh, sort of thing. So the, the value of the mark uh, just disappeared. I mean, it was, it, so these prices went up and up that's stratospherically. Well, uh, and so it took, uh, as they say, barrelfuls of uh, paper in order to go to, take it down to the store and buy a loaf of bread. And uh, so the middle class was wiped out. Uh, they lost all, everybody who had fixed savings lost in, in Germany. And uh, now this was, 
see, basically uh, a result of the uh, of the, uh, the treaty that uh, uh, with the reparations defined in it after the end of World War World War One. Okay, they, so the German people had to you know, recover. Well, here comes a, a guy on the horizon who's is saying, you know, yes, we are uh, hurting, but we are real people, and this man, this man, and this, this is so is the Nazi Party, and it's Hitler, and so Hitler uh, then uh, was uh, trying to get the Germans to understand that they had a country which is worth saving, and this and that, and so he went out finally. Uh, uh in in a new regime and he and his original or, or he was voted in as a matter of fact so it was not a, a military takeover or anything like that it was voted by the by the people the things that That's right. that we don't know about were were some of the financial arrangements that were made and the financial see after Hitler was actually in uh, this position they still owe all kinds of money, and the Nazi Party itself was was just about broke. They didn't have anything. They didn't have any source of funds, real funds, and so forth. So they got help. They got help from bankers. There was a guy named Schacht, and who was a a, a friend of uh, 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 what's his name, um, uh, the uh, the English. Uh, like Chancellor of the Czech, Czech I forget his name is I'm not, it's not coming to me right anyway he, they got, he got money from England uh, and the money from England was used to pay off the debts of all the Nazi party and so forth and so they were suddenly back in business again and uh, they were then uh, borrowing money from uh, uh let me see how to go. They borrow money from uh, anywhere in the world that are that's capable of, of sending money to them, like the United States or England or anywhere else. And like Brown, into, like Brown Brothers, Harriman, uh, Prescott Bush's company too. Yeah, right? those, those gentlemen, and uh, and they uh, put it into their industry. They create some stuff and they sell it, and they make money. And the money goes out in, for their reparations payments and that sort of thing. So they. They learned how to deal with the thing, and uh, how to deal with the the, the the reparation problem. And then finally, the reparation thing was was altered because it was so stupid in the first place. And so Hitler then was on his way, and and he was uh, running uh, a uh, a a country uh, which was perfectly pleased to have him as their, their leader because he was doing good things for them. And that's a fact. I mean... <laughs> that is true, but at the same time, and I wanted to get your take on this, the parallels between what happened in Germany during the 30s and 40s, Hitler had his ragstack fire. We had our 9-11. Yeah. Then he brought Father uh, the Enabling Act. We brought the Patriot Act. He has Fatherland Security. We have Homeland Security. Yeah, he had socialized terrible. medicine, yes. and now we do too. Do you see the script continuing here? <laughs> yes, it takes events. Uh, events can be created in order to bring the, 
desire changes around and all that. It's called Hegelianism. Right. And uh, it's been used for a long time, and it works. We have our 9-11, you know. So what do you see? How do you see the script continuing here? Uh, because they, the, 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 the Nazis lost the war but won the peace, and they made it all the way here through Project Paperclip and also to Russia. So all those scientists and engineers made it all the way here with the help of, you know, the Dulles brothers and, and all those people yeah, who were involved right. during that time. Well, they uh, we got a lot of their good scientists and so forth and who helped uh, with us, uh, helped our, develop our space program. Werner uh, von Braun, who was, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and we, uh, for the things that we want to have done ourselves, why we don't have scruples about who we uh, hire or acquire in order to do the things that we want to have done. I mean, uh, every country, and certainly including uh, Germany, has has uh, a, uh, negative aspects of what they are doing. And uh, when when you get uh, all bound up with how terrible Germany is, why then you don't want to really take a look about how terrible the United States is in a lot of ways, and and uh, sort of in particular now since we are once you become the only real power in the world, uh, then uh, then some of your uh, alleged good feelings for for uh, how to behave morally and so forth sort of disappear. So now we bomb with drones, and so we don't even know who the heck is or all the people down there who are getting killed. And and if we do it in a nice sort of a clean way, so that nobody is is uh, has to get up close to a person and see what a face looks like or what a person looks like with an arm blown off or something like that. Well, that's the problem. We we think that the damage is not being done, is just being hidden in a in a more efficient way. You know, when all these drones, and you probably have heard of the double strike rule that that the military had until recently and probably they still do, they go and they drop a bomb with the drone and five minutes later they do it again because they know that the EMTs and all the emergency personnel is coming to help and they do it again. And this has been circulating the media here in the United States for the past year, yet people don't seem to care. All of a sudden, drones are going to be happening here in the United States and all of a sudden this is an evil thing. It's okay for us to do it everywhere else, but... Don't do it, you know, above our heads. Isn't that a double standard? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's take a quick break. But folks, this book is an excellent, excellent initiation to a lot of you who may not know what's happening in the world and the, the history that we've had for the past 100, 200 years and even more. When we come back, we'll discuss a century of war, which we just did, tragedy and hope, I want to know from Alan Jones the influence that this book had on Bill Clinton, the naked capitalists, the tax-exempt foundations. We discussed that briefly. The Creature from Jekyll Island, which is an excellent book written by G. Edward Griffin. But I also want to give credit to the late Eustace Mullins, who wrote The Secrets of Federal Reserve in the 1950s. And then, of course, we have Eric Blair, uh, 
better known to most of you as George Orwell, who wrote 1984, The Report from Iron Mountain that we discuss here a lot, and many more books that Alan B. Jones has included in his book and the research, putting all this puzzle together. Alan, how do people buy your books? Uh, the easiest way is to Amazon. Amazon is uh, selling all, all five of these books. You could go to Amazon.com and uh, put in, uh, look for um, how the world really works. And, and if you want to, uh, you can put, uh, ask uh, for the author of my name and, and you'll find a little bit of a bio there and a list of the books that I've written. Excellent. Folks, I highly recommend this book. And pff, I haven't looked at his other publications, but after reading this book, I will. We have also links on our website that can direct you to where to buy the book. I'm here with Alan B. Jones, author of How the World Really Works and other wonderful publications. We'll take a quick break and we'll be right back. This is Mel Fabregas and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening to the first segment of this interview. We will continue with segment two with our special guest in the Veritas member section. Just go to our website, veritasradio.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with segment two in the member section. Enjoy. Edward Griffin, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. 